Coming up next, the booking reads a tale of a loveless marriage between an obsequious prig and his cold shrew of a wife, and also Merlin's elephant stomps somebody to death in that hideous strength. My name is Nathan Alverson. I am your humble and obedient host. So humble, so obedient. You may wonder how I got to be so humble and obedient. Toasted cheese. A toasted cheese would be one reason, not the correct reason, but it's a good guess. The actual reason is a series of catastrophic failures. Have I said that on the podcast before? <laughs> no, but <clears throat> I don't think so. let's gather around the campfire and you tell us the story. <laughs> yeah. One day I'll tell you the story of the series of catastrophic... I figure there are different ways you can become humble and obedient. You can be born that way. Yeah. It doesn't really yeah. happen to much people. You can get like... Five 5,000 spankings from your parents. That happens to some people, not very many. Or you can experience a series of catastrophic failures. And that's what I did. That works. Yeah. It, yeah, it worked for you. Yeah. That's why I'm so humble. That's why I'm so obedient. If people have been wondering, there's a little backstory for me. Nathan Alberson, the host of this wonderful podcast, joined by three wonderful people for part two of That Hideous Strength. And I will tell you who those three wonderful people are. The first wonderful person is Brandon Chastine, the PhD ABD. Hello, Nathan. Hi, Brandon. Hi. How are you? Doing very well. I'm glad to hear it. The second wonderful... I feel like I didn't spend enough time with you, Brandon. Uh, I think you did. Okay. <laughs> the second wonderful person... His name is Jake Menzel. Pastor Jake Menzel, some people call him. Or Jake, or Jacob. How you doing, Nathan? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. And Jake, what qualifies you to be here? Absolutely nothing. What qualifies you to be here, sir, is that you're the pastor who's a master of reading. You're here. As everyone knows that listens to this podcast. And if you don't know it, because this is your first time listening, then you'll find out. And we also have our mysterious guest, not so mysterious, because you heard him on the last episode. His name is Pastor Stephen Baker. Stephen, how are you? Fine, fine. Fine, fine. But really, how are you? No, I actually, I am fine. You actually are fine? (laughs) So if we dig deep beneath the... The onion. You gotta peel the onion. We're gonna peel the onion until we find similar onion. It's like a real onion. You're not really getting anything, which is more onion. (laughs) It's all... Fine. More onions Everything's fine. fine. Folks, that's one of the assertions that we're going to make on this week's The Bookening, that an onion is much the same no matter how far you go, unless it's got a maggot or something. Mm. Um, <laughs> Do you think there are too many people who are starting to listen to The Bookening now, this, at this episode? Probably. It's got a guest star, Stephen Baker. But yeah. we've, this is two. This is one in, right? Oh, yeah. This Surely is they started episode. with the... Yeah, you should probably listen to the first episode if you haven't heard You should that. turn this off and go listen to the... You can listen to it if you it's want worth to. It. Sure, you can... Let's start here. You get my wonderful introduction. Yes. Yes, that's true. All right, guys, we're going to start with the very most important thing in this book, just to get us, get this conversation rolling. Tell me your thoughts on Mr. Bultitude the Bear. Yes, sir. Who is Mr. Bultitude? Let's explore the character of Mr. Bultitude. I think, Stephen, you're actually going to give a good answer to this question that's not ironic. Maybe? Uh, <laughs> no? Uh, good answer. <laughs> I I just kind of always thought he was a bear. He was a bear? Like Pottington or one of the Berensteins? Well, he's the seventh bear of Logris. 
Yeah, so he has some symbolic importance there with the whole Merlin. Weird. I don't know who the other bears were, but he's the seventh. He's, he's the, the seventh, seventh one. <laughs> okay. He also he, enca- he encapsulates this. And just, seventh, of course. Um, there's a scene in Paralandra where he's eating these berries. Berries. Do you remember eh? this scene? I'm, that's pretty more. That's yeah, the berries are going. so they're like the perfect taste. Yeah. But they're so good that you only want to eat one. And so the point of it is that there's the simplicity and beauty of the senses yeah. and how it's corruption, gluttony, and drunkenness and all these things are corruptions of what was right. good and beautiful at first. And being perfectly happy. My with point being it is that at the moment. He, I think that he kind of uses Mr. Boltitude to present that idea again, right? With the honey and just his lumbering about looking for good, simple. Or. Things. Maybe he's just a bear. He could just be a bear. Stephen's going for the atheistic, just a bear theory. <laughs> he just thinks yep. a bunch of chemicals have gone into Mr. <laughs> Multitude. No, no. What's, what's the history of bears in England? Aren't they like extinct? I, or? Yeah, I, I don't know that. Uh, that's true. I thought they were extinct by the time of Lewis in England. They had been killed off for sport or whatever. Or yeah, so Mr. Multitude's kind of an oddity. He's... <laughs> You thought that was odd that they had a bear in their house. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was completely normal. This the is all you're house hear growing up back in Texas. <laughs> we wrestled bears every other Are Saturday. So much for bears. Oh man, I can't believe that question was already exhausted of its. Uh... Well, what do you think well, about Mr. Boltitude? Where does he first make it? Where does Mr. Boltitude first make an appearance? Like halfway through. Well, he's just at the house. I don't know. When I actually did find Mr. Boltitude. You got to have a guy. You got to have a bear who does some serious damage there at the end. Yeah. Why? Why do you have to have a bear? Something. Uh, well, there's something I think that we don't get. There's it's lost on us because we don't understand the Arthurian legend. So it's it's obviously something coming from out of there. Bears in mythology. Wouldn't Brandon? you say? Yeah. There's some famous ones, right? Well, Roman mythology, you have. There's another Ursa bear in the uh, Minor. Yeah, and then there's the bear in the uh, Narnia books. There's uh, the the uh, the bulgy bear or something, right? Who's always the sucking on bears, his paws. Yep. Yeah, I don't know that? if that has anything to do with anything. But. I'm trying to I'm trying to think if in Arthurian mythology in particular. There's no bear that I, I can't think of any bears, but this Mallory, is. Least, but. but animals are given importance sure. in Arthurian mythology, and so in the same way here, it's creation. It's, it reminds me a lot of yeah. Google has really has I, an answer. I think to it's this. probably just this simple. Oh, who's the guy who wants to exterminate all life? Is it Frost? The, the nice yeah, thing. no, it's, it's Philostrato. Philostrato. He represents something a, that a slap in that, that guy's face, basically. England that Britain yes. has tried to exterminate yeah. and they can't do it. You know, Mr. Bultitude's going to come and he's going to get his vengeance and then he's going to mate with Mrs. Bultitude and yes, make more Bultitudes. Make little Bultitudes. Yep. There will be many much <laughs> Bultitudes. What I was thinking of was, oh, which, is it the magician's nephew? Is that the Narnia that's about cr- the creation mm-hmm. story? It reminds me of that where all the animals are just in awe of. Yeah, they're, but they're given importance and consciousnesses and this joy of life. I think to really understand the answer to who Mr. Bultitude is is probably tied to the answer of who Merlin is if you really want to get into that. Well, we will get into that. Um, I I did look up the the name Bultitude because it was such a weird name. The very unusual surname is English but probably of pre-10th century French origins. It almost certainly derives from the French Bolt or Bolter and as such describes a chef but one specifically concerned with the presentation and cooking of meats. (laughs) Like heads. Yeah, oh, that was kind of cool. Is that all we're going to get out of the Bultitudes, Brandon, or are you going to... Well, if we could find where Mr. Bultitude is first described, or it's Mr. When, Bultitude's uh, lumbering about... That's when Jane first shows up. That's when James... Yeah, she's... she's she gets 
gets up to go uh, take a bath right. herself, opens the door, and he's in there. Mrs. Yeah. Max is like, out. don't take a bath. And she's like, I'm going to take a bath. I hate uh, being told what to do. And then I may be paraphrasing that. So there's this novel called uh, Freaky Friday. <laughs> hey, it's about Jodie Foster. And, <laughs> and uh, there's a Mr. Bultitude character. There's also a Mr. Bultitude in a Woodhouse uh-huh. um, novel or a story called The Gold Bat. Mr. Bultitude is also the name of the tame bear, the last of the seven bears of Lagras ah, in the yes. third book of C.S. Lewis' science fiction trilogy. This is all staying in. What is all this about? What are we talking about? <laughs> Mr. Bultitude? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I just saw something. Got it? Way down here. Okay. <clears throat> Mr. Bultitude's mind was as furry <laughs> and as inhuman in shape as his body, he did not remember as a man in his situation would have remembered the provincial zoo from which he had escaped during a fire. Not his first snarling and t- terrified arrival. Th- so this is where you begin to realize that he's being awakened, right? right? Something different is happening to Mr. Bultitude. So <laughs> there was no prose in his life. The appren- the appetences, appetencies, that's a word I don't know. I don't know. The appetencies, which a human mind might disdain as cupboard loves. Oh, this is the appetites. Oh, the right. appetites. It's just a right. British way of saying appetite. The appetences. The appetences. The appetences. You got to say it with a British accent. Love. Okay, not that. <laughs> Gosh, the human mind might disdain his cupboard loves were for him quivering and ecstatic aspirations which absorbed his whole being, infinite yearnings, stabbed with the thread of tragedy and shot through with the colors of paradise. That's what I'm. That's what I was trying to get at. Is this <laughs> sense that Mr. Bultitude is for C.S. Lewis? It's a, that's what you were trying to get yeah. at. <laughs> <laughs> there's something there about the and it goes back to like what he was saying in Paralandra with purity of these I don't know I haven't read it yeah don't look to me oh boy alright we're moving on from Mr. Bolt let's move on from Mr. Bolt we've mined a lot of gold <laughs> yeah so much gold that's deep pure yeah. wow. right, pure let's, gold uh, let, let, let's talk about the statics Mark and Jane oh. our favorite couple <laughs> the lamest yes. characters in popular fiction um, starting with their names. Starting with their names. On Mark purpose, of course. And Jane. On purpose. Let's talk about Mark. What is What motivates him? How does he begin the novel? Who is this guy, Mark? Talk to me, whoever. Oh, Mark. Oh, Mark. I think uh, the older I get, the more I can see myself in Mark. Oh, really? I've, I've been Mark. You've been Mark? In what sense? Oh, my. The thing that drives him is being a part of the inner circle. So the fear of man, lust for approval. At the very beginning where it talks about their marriage, and it's just so sad, the coldness and all of that. And it's just, I, I've been there. I know you have not. I have not. No. I suspect these other men at the table have. I have. No. And Jake's marriage is 100% perfect. <laughs> Start to finish. And so that, that was what struck me this time in reading it. It was just that, uh, man, it's just such a sad, there, there are so many men, and I've been there, like I said. He is uh, a man without a chest. Yeah, exactly. He's the definition of, of what that is. What is he, a sociologist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a joke. Right. Sociology is a joke. It's one of the jokes in the book. Do you think C.S. Lewis would have looked down on the oh, entire no field of... Oh, no doubt at all. Yeah. Sociology is a is a is a fake science, and Lewis would have absolutely understood that. Uh, you know, it's logical positivism. He doesn't talk. I don't think he talks. Mentions it in this book. He might. August Comte. This is this. August Comte with this was this guy French, of course, and he was about um, make taking science and applying science to everything. This is what part of what the whole book is about is reducing everything to what can be studied by science, and you can be purely objective. That that's Comte. That's sociology. So Comte was like the the father of sociology, and so absolutely, 
you know, he, he actually makes fun of sociology in the book. Or he there's that really damning part. I think it's when Mark's in the village with that guy that wants to where it's where Mark is kind of digging the village, but not really. And right. he's he's and I think Lewis just has kind of one of his little parenthetical like I'm just going to tell you what to think about this here, which Lewis likes to do sometimes. And he talks about how Mark. Uh, I wish I could find the quote, but I, if I try to find the quote, I'll just end up looking like Brandon. Mr. Bultitude. Yeah. Mr. Bultitude over there. <laughs> yes. um, I still think there's something to say about Mr. Bultitude. <laughs> well, you think about that. Where the, the concept nouns are more real to him than the people. The idea yes. of the laborers is more real than some dude that's... He never uh, actually uh, met Some one. construction worker that he's yeah. actually talking to. And it says that over time, it had sort of eroded his brain. And he actually, he actually really did think about the worker problem or whatever example Lewis gives, the worker problem is this abstract thing. doesn't have anything to do with the real people that he meets. If you're going to take the angle that it's a joke, sociology is a joke, what's Mark recruited to the nice for? Mm -hmm. It's to be a BS propagandist. Where are you going to look for BS propagandists? I don't know, sociology department of the local college? (laughs) Yep. They've been trained in it. First time I read this, I never read the, the newspapers the same after reading this. Fascinating to think that Lewis was writing this, what, almost 100 years ago now? Not 100 years. That was bad math. I'm not good at math. That's why we're doing a literature <laughs> podcast. It's not a math podcast. Shut up, listener. But <laughs> 70 to 80. Yeah, 70 to 80. That's almost 100. Round up. It's fascinating to think that he was writing that then. Because mm-hmm. when I read stuff written by then, even bad stuff, even junky stuff, even sociologist papers from that time it just feels so much clearer and less muddy and less abstract and some of that's probably just that only the cream of the crop has survived but i think it's also Hmm. because lewis was actually seeing trends that have oh yeah developed over time no doubt and a lot of this book is one of those books that's almost a victim of its own success it's so prophetic that it actually doesn't feel exceptional in some places you're just like oh that's a that's a nice satire of the way things are well he was actually seeing yeah seeing forward when i think of mark i think of all the you know we're here at a university community and i think of all the young men who come with their aspirations to be something not to speak of jane my goodness what is mark's what is his essential sin in the marriage he just basically well he's not a man i mean he's no yeah he's not a man if you if you think about one of the subplots of this of the book is conversion the conversion of mark is mark becoming a man Mm -hmm. it's mark standing up being willing to fight and to sacrifice himself for his wife. That is what the whole point of of Mark's conversion is. And Jane's conversion is her becoming a woman, you know, submitting. And so I think that's what plays out throughout the whole thing. His constant fear, what would you call it? His... uh, He's obsequious to these organizations. Yeah. He's just always to. being manipulated and pushed yeah. and used. He's such a passive hero for he's, a novel. I mean, well, he's not a hero at know, all. I know. Yeah. Protagonist. But to, uh, I don't know. Say something smart, Jake. <laughs> well, no, I think that Stevens hit on kind of the crucial point. Mark is, he's selfish. He's self-absorbed. And he's always taking the path of least resistance wherever he goes. Yeah. He's manipulated and moved, taking... He's just putty. He's putty in everybody's hands. He's effeminate. He he yep. takes the path of least resistance. And wherever he can get pleasure, satisfaction, ease, wherever he can find it, he's going to take it. And his conversion is learning to take responsibility and to become a man. And that's when suddenly, what's that phrase again? The the, the eroticism of... Oh, the, the eroticism of obedience. <laughs> of obedience. Oh, well, yeah. It starts to, to come in and things get all mystical and erotic as he starts to be a man and she starts to be a woman. And suddenly things come to life. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I probably shouldn't be reading this as an unmarried Things man. go from black and 
and white to color. <laughs> it's for grown-ups. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, maybe that was the reason. I like the part where the elephant crushed the guy to death. Um, <laughs> but I felt so bad for Mark and Jane. There's this one little quote in there. I think it's it's one of the time, places midway through the novel when they actually hook up because it is perhaps damning or indicative of their characters that they spend most of the novel completely apart from right. each other. When he comes home and, and they kind scared. of flit around one another and it's all fake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this. There's just this one line that was, I thought was really heartbreaking where, uh, yeah, it's the part where he comes back and he's telling her about how great the job is yep. and he already has some misgivings, but he wants they're to They're preening kind of, for each other. Preening. She knew he often had rather grandiose ideas and from something in his face, she that during his absence he had been drinking much more than he usually did. And so all evening the male bird displayed his plumage and the female played her part and asked questions and laughed and feigned more interest than she felt. Both were young, and if neither loved very much, each was still anxious to be admired. Yes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of heartbreaking. Oh, it is. And then you have immediately following the morning scene, right? She wakes up cold to him and he's like making... Oh, and she makes the, the violent breakfast. The violent, yeah. yeah. And he's like admiring her, you know, he wants her to come back to bed or something like that. Yeah, he was kind of drunk and in a stupor the night before and then he wakes up and he's like, ah, I'm a man. Ah. Well, and that's the thing. I, what I would say, if you ask what the book is about, it is about marriage. And do you think that that's what it's about? Lewis did a good job being a bachelor at the time that he wrote this. I think he did an amazing job. I don't know how I, I've I've thought about this this time around. I don't know how he did it, but I think he did an amazing job of crawling inside the minds of a husband and a wife like this. Have you met a lot of people like this in this university town? And, yeah. Um, yeah. That's just everybody. <laughs> that's, I wish every, I wish every young woman at IU would read this book and see herself in Jane and every young man would read, read it and see himself in Mark and have the same conversion. Let's talk a little bit more about Jane. What is it? What is her deal? What are, what, what is it that you wish young women would see? Well, Jane is a academic. She's gone to college. They have put off having children so that she could finish her um, dissertation dissertation, because she is a PhD ABD. Oh, yeah, she is. <laughs> right, and so... But you're wiser than she is, yeah. don't worry. Yeah, that's right. Whew. I'm not a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but just all the stuff going on inside of her head is the stuff that we deal with, dealing with... Young ladies. Young women at the university. It, she is the perfect type of all of that. I mean, he really does nail it. It's just amazing. Just the person that doesn't want to get hurt, that's sort of put a a shield up, all that sort of thing. Put a shield up. um, She's bought into the feminism. She's ashamed when she's she's vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. When she's vulnerable with Mother Dimble and all of that, having to to be cared for. She's the hard, she, she wants to be the hard woman. Until, and that's where she's heading. Absolutely where she's heading. And looking for, yeah, whatever are you going to I was going to say, until she meets a man. That's what I, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Looking for that strong male leadership and completely floored when she meets it. Yeah. Blown away. I mean, yeah. in, in Ransom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I guess that was a dumb question. Gorgeous Ransom. <laughs> <laughs> ransom makes ransom. us all feel like real men. Let <laughs> it go, Ransom. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he's been to Venus. What are you, what are you, what are you going to do? What I think is the most, why, here's why I like this book the best. This is why I think it's so good, is because it crawls inside the mind of both the men and the women and tells us what's going on inside there. And, and he just nails it. And, it. and he nails it in such a way that you can't help feeling that you're that guy or you're that woman, if you're a woman. Yeah, I mean, not f- accidentally, the very first word of this book is matrimony. Matrimony, absolutely. And the very last scene is matrimony. It, it's and, the marriage and it's bed. the perfect you know what's the what's the solution to the modernist machine it's prosaic matrimony 
down to the it's fact that, that their their big erotic encounter actually gets I don't want to say diffused, but it turns into oh, Mark, I really like the he way that he ends shirt. the book. He left this shirt. Oh, I better get in there. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's just prosaic like, matrimony. Yeah. Is the erotic, mystical solution to the modernist machine? I never thought I'd hear you say that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only summarizing C.S. Lewis. Modernist. That's all. What was that sentence again? The Uh, matrimony is the prosaic matrimony is is the the erotic solution solution to the the modernist modernist machine. machine. (laughs) I think erotic and mystic. Oh yeah, yeah. Prosaic matrimony is the erotic mystical solution to the modernist machine that should be a teaser that, that should be a t-shirt again. is what it should be yeah. that's our first book that's what t-shirt. i thought you said too <laughs> it should be a t-shirt i'd wear that t-shirt <laughs> big picture of jake's face <laughs> prosaic matrimony erotic <laughs> and and that really i mean how how prophetic is that the whole the whole point there's the point where where uh, merlin comes to the door right that's kind of the one of the kind of a climax right where they're, they're looking for merlin looking for merlin he comes to the door and there's this duel of of questions right? right and one of the questions has to do with the moon and that's the sublunar thing that we talked about earlier and the answer let me read the answer to you yeah, um, the answer is frightening oh my goodness so the question is who is called sulva what road does she walk why is the womb barren on one side where are the cold uh, marriages and then part of the answer is on this side the womb is barren and the marriage is cold there dwell an accursed people full of pride and lust there when a young man takes a maiden in marriage they do not lie together but each lies with a cunningly fashioned image of the other made to move and to be worn by devilish arts for real flesh will not please them. They are so dainty in their dreams of lust. Their real children they fabricate by vile arts in a secret place. I mean, man, that is, that's, uh, that's America. It is us. It's not just weird. It's just the way it is today, you know. And it's all about the barrenness of the womb, the coldness of the marriage, the fakeness, not real flesh, but fake. I mean, this is all about pornography. And how could he, you know, he couldn't have seen what we have today, but he saw it. That's why I think the whole thing is about marriage. Um, <laughs> I liked this line. It's all about Mr. Bultitude. <laughs> yeah, it is all that's about what, Mr. Bultitude. I'm still waiting for Brandon to prove that. Um, he ties in, man. I'm, trying, I'm still trying to get this theory. He has sex with that bear lady. It's all, yeah. it is all about There marriage. you go. Yeah. It's about Mrs. Bultitude. Right. It's all about well, I think Mrs. I think the answer really is boring. What Mr. Bultitude represents. It's what I said. He represents He's a bear. I, to Lewis, because Lewis talks a lot about in Paralandra and in the other books and in. This one too, just the simple beauty of the beast. Yeah, the the yeah. animal yeah. pleasure and how when it's corrupted by us, like in the passage you just read, it becomes perverse. But in because how many characters? This this is one point to make with Mister Bultitude. <laughs> I'm harping on this. How many characters actually get a scene where they become the first, the vehicle through which the narrative is carried? He gets one. Mark Jane and Mister Bultitude. I think. Yeah. So uh, something's going on with Mister Bultitude. That's why I, he gets. Yeah, he gets like four or five pages of just him. So for Lewis, something is going on with Mister Bultitude. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> we may not be able to. It, man. We may not be able to figure it I out. You, I think you should. That's that should there's be your dissertation. Here. Yeah, right there's a there. thesis here. Get, that, get rid of that A B and get the B. Come the crazy man with Mr. Bultitude. <laughs> Bultitude and Sasquatch. A dissertation by Brandon Scott Chesney. Yes. <laughs> if you do want to understand, uh, just have a good insight into the basic philosophy that 
Lewis is operating off of here. The Weight of Glory is a fantastic essay, and it's only a few pages long to read. And there he talks about us moving towards what's essential. He has the famous metaphor of eating, we're, we're like children eating mud pies right. you know, because we don't understand what it would be like to go and have a holiday by the sea. That's mm-hmm. that's what human beings are. We don't understand the glory and the greatness. Far too easily pleased. And the pleasure that would come through through obedience, through glorifying God. And so instead we're like, I'm just going to get drunk or do right. meth. Shout out to Indiana. Um, <laughs> go meth. <laughs> go meth. <yeah. laughs> That'll be our second t-shirt after whatever Jake's go t-shirt was. <laughs> this Picture of Brandon in a little... Uh, a bear suit. <laughs> with horrible <teeth>. RV. <laughs> go meth. I, I thought that part was interesting with Mrs. Dimble, with Mother Dimble, as we should call her. He says she's the kind of woman that Jane could imagine making jokes about Shakespearean cod pieces and all yes. that kind of stuff. In some ways, she's a much more vulgar woman, and yet in some ways... In it, but in the next moment, kneeling at the altar. She's going to kneel That's at the altar. That's what he says. Well, it, it's just the whole... It is the, it's the, it's the, the antithesis of the sterile, cold, colorless, antiseptic yeah. scientism Bodyless. of the NICE. Yeah. yeah. And it's the, the real world, the normal world is fleshy. You know, it's the opposite of Gnosticism. That's that's what's going on. The NIC is Gnostic. We're going to get beyond the body. St. Anne's is all about the body. It's about vegetables. <laughs> you know, it's about the gardens. Colorful it's about, dresses. And also Mr. Bultitude. And honey, it's yeah. about Mr. Bultitude. <laughs> Mr. Bultitude. It's Here about he comes. The, you know, Stephen's explaining him for us. Yeah. that's And that's what's so... Um, Thank you, Stephen. You're welcome. I mean, I, I have to be... You're here. I've got to get my... And so then the corruption comes in when they, they keep trying to repress and think that it's just intellectualism and this coldness. But then you get... All that happens is you get the corruption of that through this head, which is just hor- horrific... Or the body of Fairy Hardcastle, which is described in some horrifying ways, too. Yeah. And just as being an abnormal abnormality, a, a monstrous body. And the weird the weird thing about Fairy Hardcastle... Well, there <laughs> the are many... Of- fairy- <laughs> Please, May I go what, what is May I go the weird thing May I veer about- into very, Fairy Hardcastle? Absolutely. Yeah. She, she's this obscene... She's a bull dyke. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you think? And, and who does she surround herself with? Little, little caricatures of femininity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just fascinating. You know, the little, sweet little things. Everything about this uh, book is hyperbole. If you could take feminism and distill it into, you know, black and Personify white. It. Take and it to perso- its logical Take it to its, yeah. everything, let's take everything to its logical conclusion. Let's forget, let's rem- actually remove real life. Most people real in real life are going to have more it. inhibitions than fairy, someone named Fairy well, Jane and Jane and Mark are the real people. That are stru- wrestling in the midst of all that stuff, but you're right about yeah. So yeah. let's everybody let's polarize else. it. Yeah. yeah, that is an interesting part of the novel is how allegory gets wrapped into it. So you get this thing called the Nice Institute, which they would have never really called it that, but that's the name of this place. It's and so you have that, and then you have the names of the characters: Frost, Wither, yeah. Wither. Wither. Yeah. yeah. Does Philostrato mean something in Italian? It's, it has to mean something. You don't know? I don't know. Well, I should have figured that out. I'm too busy <laughs> studying up on both of them. I didn't even find the answer. Uh. <laughs> and so it's the way the novel plays with this. What is fairly allegorical? It is supposed to be real, but it's also standing for something else. Yeah, and so they they, they personify 
real philosophies and real ways of thinking. Yes. But in a, in a grotesque kind of way. Yeah. Like exactly. But it's still supposed to be in the world and acting in the world. And so, I mean, and then, it, then it works when you have Merlin come out of his slumber. He fits into this world. But it all starts out normal enough. I mean, one of the things that struck me when I read it three or four years ago was just the way he described this obsession that Mark had to get inside the inner circle. That's just, it's... It, it is the story true. of every academic. Exactly. That is what it means to be in the academic yeah. world. And that's the way that academia sets itself up, is there are these circles that you want to get in. You want to be a part of that circle. If you can't be a part of that circle, you'll stab someone in the back to get in there. And then once you get inside, you find out that it's just like anything else. It's power play and... Yeah, it's hollow. It's hollow. Yeah, Hollow and deceptive. The not, what's fascinating about how he presents this world is it can both at the same time stand for these ideas. Like then you can have these angels or what are they called? The, or Eldai or whatever. Eldila. Oriarsa. 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 That's how we say it in Texas. <laughs> they can descend and Merlin can come out and you can have all these animals killed everybody in the nice institute and it fits in with this other everyday academic world and so philostrata is a little too deep to open up i think there's a poem called il philostrato written by boccaccio and it's the ins- inspiration for chaucer's troilus and Cressidy. boccaccio like the decameron and, boccaccio yeah well there's no doubt that Same. lewis knew all about that Oh, sure. And yeah. through Chaucer, the influence behind the Shakespearean play Troilus and Cressida. Yeah, go as deep as you want. It's well, a rabbit hole that's going to take you more. way down. So the thing, there's a there's this great conversation between, I think it's the Dimbles. I think it's Mr. and Mrs. Dimble talking at some point kind of towards the end. But they're talking about, he, he's saying how the further we get in history, the more everything gets like what it is. And the more intense everything gets, the more good the good gets and the more evil the evil gets. Right. I think that's true. I think that's simply true of even, you know, when I look at our country, I think that's what we're seeing today is the kind of this, the the extremities are, are kind of stretching out away from each other. You know, so you've got real intense evil. And you've got people in the midst of that evil saying, what in the world is going on? And, and kind of waking up to righteousness. Because I think, I think what he says is happen, happens, really does happen. So, you know, you're talking about almost the caricature of these things. Yeah. But it fits right into to what he's saying in terms of what, what is happening right then. You know, these, these people have become the extreme expression of what they are. Well, and, and we just Saint had an Anne's, election where Donald Trump yeah. went against Hillary Clinton Two grotesques, if ever it's, there were It's one. absurd. It's now like we've a, got a patriot in the White House, and everything's going to be solved, and we aren't going to have any more problems like what you're talking about. Build that wall. Um, before we build that wall. <laughs> make America great Make again. America great again. But yeah, I mean, this novel is, you, you, wish it was, you wish you could say it was more of an exaggeration. There well, things are grotesque on the one hand, and on the other hand, things are beautiful. It really is. St. Anne's it really is beautiful, and we all want to live there. Yeah. At least I do. I don't really want to watch those animals have sex. Oh, you don't have to watch them. I do, though. Ransom will be like the glory of blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. In the end, the elephants go away. No, but they keep the curtains open. But they went away. I would have closed the curtains. I'm with that Oh, come on. I'm with rationalist. Get your mind out of the gutter. That's what I'm trying to do by closing the curtains. (laughs) Talk to me, fellas, about... Oh, I like this line. This was a fun line from Jane. Only one thing kept him awake after going to bed... And even that, not very long. Sick burn, bro. Oh, it's awful. (laughs) Lewis was always good at portraying cattiness in his characters when he wanted to. He was good at cattiness. Well, but it's not just catty, it's true. And we shouldn't just think of her being catty. We should think of Mark Mark being being a... And she should feel bad. She should be mad about that, you know? 
that just ain't right. I don't have any crosstalk on that one. Um, nor will I on this one. <laughs> Guys, um, the book makes the claim that obedience and humility are erotic necessities. How do we feel about that? Discuss. I'm going to sit this one out, but I feel like there should be some discussion. You're going to sit this one out. I'm not, I don't have any erotic necessities. You don't know nothing about that. Somebody should say something, though. It's, it, what he, all he's talking about is being a man and being a woman. You can't have love. You can't have sex. You, real erotic sex you can have what he describes you know about the the side of the moon you can have um cold mechanical lifeless mechanisms even when you're making love to that person you're still making you're not making love you're not it's just you're just going through the motions right and so what he's talking about is being a man being a woman fulfilling your duty as your sex as male or female and you can't have real intimacy, real eroticism, real, you know, all that stuff. You can't have any of that unless the man is being the man and the woman's being the woman. And that, I mean, he's exactly right. That it is, um, I think it's brilliant. I agree. <laughs> Men are made to bear responsibility and to be strong and to be hard. And the difference that we see in Mark is he goes from being a soft man to taking the first steps towards not, to taking the first steps towards being taking responsibility for himself and for his bride. It changes everything. Yeah, and so this is what, you know, so secularists, godless people think they have a corner on sex, on eroticism. They think Christians are prudes and know nothing about sex, and they, you know, they think that they're the ones who kind of invented it. The fact is God invented it, and God invented it to be enjoyed in the context of marriage by a man who's being a man and a woman who's being a woman. Context is everything. Yeah. Secularists, people who despise God, people who despise their calling as man or woman, and who have no obedience to God themselves, they, they can't, they know nothing about sex. I think that's that's the point. Agree, Brandon? I agree. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I agree. <laughs> the only thing I'd say is, well, no, I have nothing to add. Oh, come on, say it. It's just kind of reiterating what Jake was saying, but you have this man that kind of shames him into when he first sees Ransom, he knows that he's inadequate and she knows that he's inadequate too. And that's the thing. And so when he sees this and he finally takes a step towards becoming Ransom, even as a small, pathetic Ransom, that's when things do change for them. And there's happiness in that obedience, like you were saying. Suddenly he's desirable, and suddenly she can yeah. have the freedom to actually be a woman. Yeah. Suddenly it all becomes attractive and real. You move from black and white to color. And as he's walking, he's on his way to St. Anne's after the whole thing you know, blows up, and he's walking, and he's thinking and thinking and thinking, and she is becoming more and more attractive to him because in his mind he's thinking of her more and more as a woman. And so it's happening on both ends, both sides of it. You know, she's, he's becoming a man. And in his mind, we really see it, well, you see it with Jane, but you see it in his head more of her becoming a woman. Of course she is becoming And then a woman. suddenly, how had he dared? And dared with no sense of daring. Yeah. Suddenly, she's not a man anymore. She's not somebody that he goes to bed with. She's a woman. She's other. There's a holiness, an otherliness about her that makes her... A mystical erotic being to, to him. Yeah. And that's why yeah, that's why I think at the very last line you mentioned earlier about the, the shirt being hung, you know, flung over the window. I don't and she says, Well, I better go in. I don't see that as a well, I better go in. I th- you know, it's not this kind of it's really 
I have to go in. It's a necessity. It's obedience. It's um, it's cosmic. You know, it's she. There's nothing else she can do. She's a woman, and she's married to that man. It's not just kind of a bland. What do you say, prosaic kind of thing? It's it's uh, no. What I meant was what he's showing us is the cosmic in the prosaic. There, I think we've gotten so cosmic in yeah, the last couple yeah. pages of description. You don't agree? Well, um, I think it's more than that. I think there's a man in there, and he's got his clothes off, and that man's my husband. She's gonna. Do the laundry. And my calling, no, no, no. I assumed it was about laundry. My calling is to get in there and make love to him. That's what it means for me to be a woman at this point. I have to do it. It's my obedience. But it's not a drudgery. Why do they both think uh, that person? They'll probably leave me. Why? Why do they both have that weird sort of fear, self-loathing, or fear? Or, or it's it's the growing of humility, beginning to see the truth about each other, the otherliness of man. Man and woman is oil and water, and in 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 a certain respect this uh, what does chesterton say about it you know it's he has this beautiful thing that i couldn't possibly hope to quote where two completely opposite otherly things entirely incompatible and made for each other and there's a a fear and a wonder and a glory in all of it that is uh that is a wolf spider that is big ain't he no, he's probably feeling the joy of life right mm-hmm. now well, not, oh, long. not <laughs> anymore yep we remade the world <laughs> <laughs> um, he was just trying to find Mrs. Spider. Yeah. <laughs> Call that I'm doing the earth. Protecting <laughs> <laughs> my wife. She has a terrible fear of spiders. Well, good. You yeah. just did your duty. I did my duty. Yep, yep. You're a regular mark at the end of the novel. Um, <laughs> you're a regular ransom. Um <laughs> I, 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 did you guys think that there was anything weird about, because I'm a, a, a feminine egalitarian myself in many ways, or at least tempted by that, I always get nervous when I read a book written by a man from a woman's perspective. You, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like like in real life, women probably aren't thinking like, my breasts are amazing as they look. But in novels, they do quite a bit, actually. It's like, I don't think a woman wrote this. Um, <laughs> probably. What I'm trying to say is it's always weird when men write about women and I always get nervous like are they going to screw it up are they going to be condescending are they going to be sexist so do we feel weird about Lewis writing about no I'm not saying we have to as a rule feel weird I'm saying does he knock it out of the park is is there any stuff that we I think there are lots of things that Lewis knocks out of the park I also think that Lewis is if we compare Lewis to some of the books that we've read over the course of the booking, Lewis is painting in watercolors where somebody like Tolstoy's painting in oils. And so I think there are a lot of things where when he is expositing, he, he's a lot like Austin in his exposition. And it's, it's helpful. It's excellent. It, it's eye-opening, especially if you're one of those younger couples early in your marriage. But you know, I don't think he touches Jane Austen in his understanding of relationships and his understanding of women. It was interesting, by the way, that she wanted Mansfield Park as one of the books that she was reading after she was uh, kind of redeemed or heading towards redemption. She asks for uh, mm-hmm. George MacDonald, Jane Austen, and one more. I forget what it is, but those were interesting choices. I'll tell you, if you're a bachelor and you like C.S. Lewis and you want to be able to write about these things, you could do a lot worse than to read everything Jane Austen's ever written. I'm not, when I say that Lewis was painting in watercolors, I'm not trying to insult him or put, no, put him down. I'm just saying by con- contrast, than, yeah, he's... He's painting in broad this strokes. Is, this is, this is what Tolkien found fault with, with yeah. Lewis for. And I would argue there's a place for watercolors. There's a place for this kind of... Simpli- the, the simplicity of Narnia as an allegory is a wonderful, beautiful thing. There's a place for that. And not everything has to be Middle Earth. Sometimes the Middle Earth. can just be called Wither and not every, Yeah, not everything has to be Middle Earth. And not every book about 
about marriage has to be something by Austin or Tolstoy. You know, when you get things as simple, as black and white, as hyperbolic, or whatever, as, as Lewis does, then you get to see things really clearly. You know, Lewis is able to make some very clear, poignant points are really, really great. And so is it as complex? Well, so maybe it's not so much about marriage exactly, but it really is about sex. Yeah, maybe. And not copulation, although that's where it ends, not to mention Mrs. Multitude and whatnot. Multitude. But it... Well, you could say that the whole Ransom... The whole Ransom trilogy trilogy is about that. You think of how Paralandra ends with Venus and Mars Mm -hmm. there as expressions of sexuality. The masculine and the feminine. Yeah. In their kind of pure, almost platonic ideals. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's the point. He's not the the getting into the psychology of Jane and Mark. It's incidental. It's a way of getting to the of male and and female and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman and or in what it means to be man in a more cosmic what it means to be human as opposed to like this sterile stripped down non anti human uh, ideal that's presented to us by the modernists by the nice by mm-hmm. George Bernard Shaw yeah and so he's he's fighting modernism with everything he's got and the tool that he pulls out is sexuality it's sex yeah. it's men and women and humanity and how and reality how amazingly and, prophetic is that yeah yeah you know the strength of the great divorce is similar to that or and until we have faces also it's not so much in the particulars of the story as in to the broader sweep of the story to the point that it's making and so you said it was this is like the abolition of man mm-hmm. um fictionalized right yeah so you can see that there that has an argument that it's making in it and so when it gets to the particularities of like the actual craft of narration and psychology and stuff they don't he yeah he doesn't hold a candle to jane austen but he's not trying to but he's not trying to yeah, yeah. right uh, they're beautiful watercolor paintings that it's a fairy tale after are, all. well I, I think in the book itself it lies an argument for the value of what he's doing he's also tried uh giving us the charcoal <laughs> You know, the, the pen and ink, Abolition of Man. Mm-hmm. And it's a fantastic essay. A fraction of the people who... It's, it's just... It's not nearly as accessible. It's not nearly as indelible. It's not going to hit your memory. The scenes aren't going to, you know, you got to remember a, a, a few key phrases from the abolition of man. Men you got to be men without chess, uh, something about geldings. Castrate and, them and bid them. Uh, bid the geldings be fruitful. fruitful. Yeah. And a couple other key phrases. And you got to be pretty smart and sophisticated. It's a long essay. You have to be pretty smart and sophisticated to follow that thing. Agreed. Agreed. And to really have it. As you did so well. (laughs) I was just thinking about how many (laughs) phrases I could remember from it, and then Jake started saying, like, you have to be pretty sophisticated. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) All I mean by that is if you're going to try to teach these concepts to a high school student, are you going to do better to give them that hideous strength or the abolition of man? Which are they going to come away with, with a better understanding of what he's trying to say and a better understanding of the way the world is and the way the world works? Not hideous strength, 100%. There's no question, right? an elephant that crushes a guy. I mean... Because there's an elephant that crushes a guy. seriously. I mean, it's like, it's got, it's a fun story. Yeah, it's got some really, I laugh out loud every time I read Withers' speech. The scrambling. Uh, uh, of, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, elasticity. Uh, <laughs> the multitudinous <laughs> elasticity, shall we say. 
This is one that I think would make a good movie, and I'm sorry that it hasn't. Um, oh, come on now. If they made this into a movie, it I'm would not be, saying they so do a good job. There's this, there's this website where some guy casts that hideous strength. Have you seen this? <laughs> no. Who does he cast? Oh, it's perfect, uh, except for Fairy Hardcastle. He does some stupid, that's just not right at all. But And he gets a few things wrong, but it's, it's perfect. But it'd be awful. It would be awful because... It would do, <laughs> do you know I just cast this very hard castle in my head no who is this <laughs> it was, uh, hang on a second. yeah it was some oh, stupid like no. angular woman no, she's not it's fat a, no it has to be someone horrifying it's Harvey Fierstein you're really gonna kick out this whoever it is it's Harvey Fierstein or whatever his name is Harvey Beerstein <laughs> oh that guy from the Independence <laughs> Day that talks like this oh yeah <laughs> you can get it out it's <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I don't want to see Jake's version. Whoever did it, they would do exactly what, what's his name, Peter, what's his face? Jackson did. Jackson did the Lord of the Rings. Shield surfing. You you just, you just, you strip out all the essence of the book and you make it a book about Martians and Merlin and bad guys. That's not what it's about at all. They would totally miss the essence of it. They would do a good. It would ruin it. And then everyone, then everyone from here on out would never read the book. All they do is watch the movie, and Western society collapses. (laughs) Wow! Wow! I think he just just laid blame for the collapse of Western society at the feet of Peter Jackson. (laughs) I like the Hobbit movies. I know they're terrible, but I still like them. The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. No, I even like the Hobbits. That's how lost I am. Yeah. It's got that part where he shield, shield surfs on the spider. And uh, barrel surfs? Yeah, barrel surfing. It's got all that surfing. Uh-huh. As a surfing fan, what, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. Um, you do know how you like to hang five or hang ten, yeah, whatever. Well, obviously, I'm always hanging five or ten. <laughs> um, all right, moving down. Any, anyone want to say anything else about the what's-their-faces, the Staffords, the, stu- the Stuttards, before we move on from them? Stuttuck. 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 I think it's important to think about their conversion. Yes, let's talk about that now. Let's talk about their conversions. And so it's like this mirror image of what's going on at the same time with Jane and Mark. And so Jane is converted by coming into contact with good people, Mark by coming into contact with evil people, right? It's like this mirror image. Jane looks outward. Jane is converted when she sees hugeness. Remember when she's in the the room with with Ransom when the, the angels come down? And she feels hugeness, and that's really the turning point. And Mark is converted when he feels the normal, you know, the the small, when he's in the objective room. So glory versus goodness. And Jane is converted when she becomes a woman, when she submits and softens. Uh, Mark is converted when he becomes a man, when he stands up and hardens. Mm. I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the way that Lewis describes their conversion. And I, I, I've always appreciated about Lewis. I, I guess his own conversion was one of, he said he got on a motorcycle right. and thought it through. By the time and, he got to the zoo, yeah. he was a Christian. I like that insofar as it's an antidote to the cheap, like, believe in Jesus and say the sinner's prayer. Because in my own life, I don't know when my conversion was. And I feel like it was certainly more of a process of circling around something that was glorious until I got there. And sometimes I wonder if I've even got there yet. Mm -hmm. If I'm allowed to say that, maybe I'll cut that out. But um, I think he just does a nice job of looking, of 
just the degree, I don't know what I want to say, the way that people circle around things, the way that they, that the Holy Spirit begins to work in their life, but does not bring that work to a completion all at once, the way that they... It's not an event. It happens in stages. Yeah. It's not an event. Yeah. I just think he has a nice... It can be an event. Sure. But it, sometimes and probably most often it isn't. That part actually does ring pretty psychologically real to me in a non-grotesque sort of a way where, you know, it's just yeah. like she starts to think and soften up and then the next time she thinks a little... And then, you know, there are some big dramatic moments. There's a point at the very end where it almost, I mean, it sounds downright Calvinistic. Lewis was no Calvinist, but he was, it's like this irresistible against her own will. She's being remade into something, you know, and it's clearly God is the one who's doing this. It's new birth. And so I think when he's describing that kind of thing, he's, he actually is getting getting it right. But everything changes. It's what she loves. It's what he loves. It's what they, it's what they love. It's what they hate. It's what they, you know, it's not just their mind. It's not just their thoughts, but it's their affections that are changing. Their hearts are changing. And every time he describes them being split into different selves, talking yes. talking to each, you know, at one yeah. point. Says, Both of them go through that. There was this Jane, there was that Jane, yep. and there was the other Jane, and this one said this, and this one yep. said this. That rang, that rings very true to me. Yep. Sure enough. Um, let's see, erotic necessities, women. It's the <laughs> erotic necessities. It's a bear. Mr. Boltitude. Today was written and produced by Nathan Alverson and performed. I know you don't like it when I say performed. Everyone hates it, the fact that I say that we perform these things. That's like the number one criticism I get about the booking. Um, They're improvised. Yeah, whatever you want. Whatever you call it when a bunch of people have a conversation. Conversed. Is that what you want me to say, listener? Experienced. Experienced. <laughs> it's experienced by us in a way that you simply will never right. experience yourself. Right. The time. You say directed by Nathan Alberson and improvised by... I guess it is. We are improvised. People really complain about you saying perform. Yeah, I get that all the time. People are like... That's like... That really is one of the number one criticisms. Anyway, um, the guess what? I don't care. It's my podcast. Listen to something else. Listen to... This American Life, if that's what you—that's the kind of person you are. Uh, this American Life listener, <laughs> Fairy Hardcastle probably would have listened to that. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like This American Life, but this podcast was written and performed by me, Nathan Alverson, Jake Menzel, Brandon Chastain, and our special guest, Stephen Baker, Pastor Stephen Baker. If you forgot to ask him if he has anything to plug. Oh, do you have anything to plug, Stephen? <laughs> ClearNotePastorsCollege.com. ClearNotePastorsCollege.com. You can also go to Warhorn Media for lots more wonderful content like this. You can look up Warhorn Media on the various social, various social networks. Uh, all right, good night, everybody. Good night.